Well, good morning. My name is Ryan Reed. I'm humbled to be here. Feels amazing. Would you open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 21 and would you stand for the reading of God's word? This is Matthew chapter 21, verses 1 through 11. It'll be on the screen here. Let's look at that together. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethpage, to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord needs them. And he will send them at once. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put, them on, put on them their cloaks, and he sat on them. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and that follow him, followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up saying, who is this? The crowd said, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. The word of the Lord. Let us pray together. Kind and merciful God, we stop everything this morning to call to attention the reality of your sovereignty in all things. Your hand at work in myriad and sordid affairs that we simply cannot even begin to understand you're working in. But we're here today, Lord, we're looking at your word, we're looking at the teaching of your word, and we ask that you would speak to our hearts, and that through your powerful word, our hearts might be purified, drawn closer to yourself, and that our lives might more closely resemble our Savior. God, we thank you for your word, the ultimate guide to all knowledge, truth, and understanding. And God, I pray that somehow this stammering tongue of mine might be used for your glory this morning. Do nothing, God, but glorify yourself today. It's in your powerful name we pray. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. You're in a book of Ephesians right now studying through in the church. And I'm going to take a detour because in the church calendar today is what? Palm Sunday. Today's Palm Sunday. And so we're going to look at Palm Sunday together. So we're going to be in Matthew, and I want to give you a little context coming in here so you're not completely lost. Well, we're in the culmination of three years of Jesus' earthly ministry. He's ministered through Judea and in, in, in Galilee, and if you look at a map of the area, you've got um, the Sea of Galilee sort of at the top. You've got the Jordan River that runs down, the Dead Sea at the bottom. You've got the, the region of Galilee just outside of the Sea of Galilee. That's where Jesus was raised in Nazareth, a little podunk town out in the region of Galilee. Right before that is the region of Samaria, and at the bottom, the region of Judea. And in Judea is where we find Jerusalem, Bethany. We'll talk about Bethpage in a moment as well. So as you read the Gospels, and if you were to track Jesus' life over these three years, it's like, a, I don't know, it's like a kid doing the crayon thing, right? I mean, it's all over the place. He's up and down and all around, and he's up and back and only one time do we hear him talk about going through Samaria, right? He had a, a special appointment with a Samaritan woman at a well. But other than that, Jews would go from the region of Galilee at the top. They would cross over the Jordan to avoid Samaria, cross back over the Jordan and go into Judea. So that's what leads us to where we're at this morning. For three years, Jesus has been performing miracles. 
He's been teaching throughout the regions. He's been casting out demons, healing people, but he's also been predict predicting his death repeatedly. And today is we're going to see him finally turn his face to Jerusalem for the last time. Not only that, in the text, it's Passover in Jerusalem. Josephus was a secular historian at the time. He said during Passover, there would be over a million people in Jerusalem. Over a million people in this little tiny community. There would be blood sacrifices from the altar filling the streets and the gutters, almost like it would after a rainstorm, like rain running through the gutters would be the blood from the sacrifice of the animals. At this time, the Jews were still under Roman rule. So every time you get a million Jews together, Around the temple, they're getting excited about this Jewish nationalism. They, they start to kind of fire each other up. There's national pride. And if you read the Gospels, you understand there's a little murmuring even about Jesus. They start hearing about this itinerant preacher. He's coming. Could he be the one? They're starting to ask each other, could this be the Messiah that we're waiting for? Could this be the year? And then to further add excitement to the mix, if you look in John's account here, right before the triumphal entry, Jesus is up um, outside the Jordan where John the Baptist was doing baptisms. So John's no longer there. Jesus goes up and he's spending a little time alone, probably preparing for the last week of his life. And Mary and Martha come to him and they say, hey, Jesus, you got to come because our brother's sick. Our brother Lazarus is sick. And if you come, you can heal him. And do you remember what Jesus tells them? Don't worry. This sickness will not end in death, but it will serve to glorify God. Well, sure enough, it does end in death. That was weird. But we know more of the story, right? So Jesus finally travels down. A few days later, he goes to Bethany, which is right outside of Jerusalem. Bethany's the hometown of Lazarus. He goes to Bethany. Mary and Martha are weeping. They said, you're too late. Jesus is weeping. He says, it's not too late. He says, roll the stone away. They say, don't roll the stone away. It's going to smell. It's been multiple days. He said, don't worry. I got this. Roll the stone away. And he speaks into the tomb and he says what? Lazarus, come forth or come out. And up Lazarus raises grave clothes still on. And he comes and they peel the grave clothes off of him. Now, the scripture says, the Jewish leaders have a real problem. This is actually what turns the tide. They're already not real happy with Jesus, but now someone actually raised from the dead and more people are coming out. So for three years, Jesus has been sort of off and on gaining a crowd. It's getting bigger and bigger and bigger. So his following's big. Now someone died and rose from the dead in this little town called Bethany right outside Jerusalem. I grew up in a little town too. And when anything happens in a little town, everybody knows, right? This guy died. They all had a funeral for him. Now he says, the scripture says he's walking and talking to people within Bethany. If people were walking and talking in my hometown and they were dead and I went to their funeral, it'd be a big deal. So now what it says is that people are coming out to see if this Lazarus thing is legit. And you got Jesus and he's coming. They want to see if he's legit. So you got Jesus coming to Jerusalem. You've got all the people trying to see Lazarus. You've got this massive city of people that are coming in for the Passover. All these things are flowing on top of each other. It's the culmination of Jesus' three years of ministry. And there's this murmuring that maybe this is the year that Messiah is going to be here. So with that, would you look at the text again with me? Let's start in verse one. 
when they had approached Jerusalem and had come to Bethpage at the Mount of Olives. So Jesus is now leave, leaving Lazarus' hometown is Bethany. You leave Bethany and take this little trail up to the Mount of Olives. Bethpage is there. It's like a stop on the way. And from Bethpage, you can see Jerusalem. So they leave Bethany. They're at the top of Bethpage. And he says, let's send a couple disciples forward. And he sends two of them. We don't know who. He sends two of them and he gives them specific directions saying to them, go into the village opposite you and immediately you'll find a colt tied there and uh, um, or you'll find a donkey tied there and a colt with it. Untie them and bring them to me. And if anyone says anything to you, you shall say the Lord needs them and he will send them on immediately. And then verse four, fulfilling Zechariah's prophecy 500 years earlier, verse four says, now this took place so that what was spoken through the prophet would be fulfilled. Say to the daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming to you. How? Humble and mounted on a donkey, even a colt, the foal of a donkey. So the disciples do exactly as they're told. They bring back the donkey as they're instructed. And Jesus mounts the donkey and makes his way toward Jerusalem. Verse six, the disciples went did exactly as Jesus had instructed them and brought the donkey and the colt and laid their cloaks on them. And he sat on the cloaks and Jesus begins to his, his walk down to Jerusalem, down from the Mount of Olives, to sort of go down, then up to Jerusalem. And as he's walking, remember, he already has a crowd following him. Now all the crowd's coming out to see Lazarus. They're walking together. You've been following Jesus for a while. That crowd's getting bigger. The followers of Lazarus is getting bigger. The masses are in for Passover. That's getting bigger. It actually says people are coming out of the town to meet him. So there's this thronging crowd and it's swelling and Jesus comes in, and it's almost like as he turns the quarter to come into Jerusalem, the place goes nuts. Look at verse 8. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road like they're making a carpet for Jesus. Others are jumping in the trees and cutting down the branches and waving them and laying them on the ground so he can walk on them. Verse 9, now the crowd's going ahead of him, and those that follow, they begin to shout, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And the party is erupting. Verse 10. When it entered Jerusalem and all the city was stirred. So it says all the city was stirred. There's something going on here that's maybe bigger than we realize. The crowds, everyone starts asking, who is this? And the crowds tell them this. This is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. And then there, Jesus starts to become a household name in Jerusalem. Praise be to God. This morning, I'm going to pull out three points from our text, three points of praise. Two of them are going to be pretty obvious. One will take a little bit more work for me to illuminate. If you're taking notes, I'm going to give you all three of them up front, and then we'll go back through them. Here we go. The first one. Are you ready? Number one, they tell me it's going to be on the, hey, look at that. Praise be to God for his purposeful preparation. We're going to have some pee fun this morning. Praise be to God for his purposeful preparation. We won't do these yet, but I'll tell you two and three. Number two is going to be praise be to God for his precise prophecy. And then thirdly, praise be to God for his praiseworthy pardon. Let's start this morning. Praise be to God for his purposeful preparation. One thing I want to make sure we see in this passage this morning, that nothing in this passage is on accident. Nothing is haphazard. There are exacting and specific details followed to a T. First of all, within his purposeful preparation, I want you to notice the perfect timing of Jesus. This is, oh, there it is again, his perfect timing. This is awesome. This is the week of Passover in Jerusalem. 
This is the biggest of the three major feasts. And almost all Jews at some point would make this pilgrimage. When you look in Luke, remember the passage in Luke when Jesus goes to the temple as a young boy and they're looking for him. They can't find him. He said, didn't you know I'd be about my father's business, right? Right before that, it says every year Jesus' family would go up to Jerusalem for the Passover. They're good Jews. They went every year to Passover as most Jews did. So the timing here, Jesus is culminating three years of earthly ministry. He's timing it just in time to come down to Bethany, go through Bethpage and come into Jerusalem at the exact right time. Jesus knew the course to get there. He knew the customs and he knew the crowds. Interestingly enough, the triumphal entry is one of a very small handful of passages that is recounted in all four gospels. We call the first three gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the synoptic gospels. They're very similar. They kind of give a synopsis of Jesus' life. John's sort of the outlier. It's often, it's common to have one or two in a synoptic. That's not a big deal. Or to have one in here and one in John. But to have it in all four gospels is super rare. I think God might be sort of waving at us saying, hey, you might want to pay attention to this one. In fact, this morning, as Matt said, all over the world, Churches will be celebrating Palm Sunday and someone will be standing up in front of you like this, probably reading a pas- one of these four passages this morning. So we look at all of this purposeful preparation. We praise God for his perfect timing, his perfect timing. My wife uh, had a friend she visited for many, many years. She was 90 years old. She sat in front of us in church for years. Her and her husband, both in their 90s, would make the drive to church and we'd sit behind them. And it was just amazing to watch how much they loved each other and how they cared for each other. And as he got older, he stopped being able to come to church as much. Eventually, he passed away. My wife and I spoke to them often. And so my wife began to visit her in the rest home that she was in. She began to get more ill, so she couldn't come to church. But there was this opportunity for her, my wife, to go and gain wisdom from her. And when you're going through ministry and life and raising children and all the things we do, who, who agrees we need some wisdom, right? So we sat down with this older, godly woman. And my wife would say, oh, my kids are doing this, or or, our work is doing this, or church is doing that, what do we, you know, and all this, I just want God to do these things. And here's what Dorothy Jane would say to us every single time. She would say, honey, to my wife, timing is the father's business. Would you say that with me? Timing is the father's business. No, that wasn't real good. Maybe you're not used to this part. We're going to do it together. We're going to say it together, right? Timing is the father's business. Ready? Timing is the Father's business. Good. If you're taking notes, you should write that down. Timing is the Father's business. And I can't help but wonder this morning if there's people here waiting. They were waiting in Jerusalem for centuries for Messiah. They were always coming back and, oh, maybe this is the year. Maybe this is the year. I wonder what you may be waiting for today. Maybe you're in here this morning and you're waiting for a job. Maybe you're waiting for a spouse. Maybe you're waiting for a spouse's heart to return to you. Maybe you're waiting for a child, hoping to have a baby. Or maybe you're anxiously praying for your child that's a prodigal waiting for them to come home. Either way, it's hard. (laughs) I don't know what you're waiting for today, but I know that Jesus, this is a good one, Jesus is always on time. Amen? Because timing is the fa- that's your cue. When I start doing that, then you say it back. We do it together. Ready? Because timing is the Father's business. Good work. So we say, praise be to God for his purposeful preparation. First, in his perfect timing. Second, in his particular supply. This is important. 
I want you to look at verse two again. Go into the village in front of you and immediately you'll find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. I don't want you to miss how exacting his particular supply is here and in our lives. Jesus sends two of his disciples and he says, go immediately into Jerusalem and you'll find a donkey. How, how will we know? You're talking about go to Jerusalem and get a donkey? Like you're joking, right? I want you to go immediately. And, and the Greek word here is, is interesting enough to, to bring up. It literally means like as soon or immediately. Don't like it's not far. It's right away. So immediately you walk into Jerusalem. As soon as you get into the city, you're going to see a donkey tied up. So first of all, immediately. Second of all, tied there for you. But third of all, it's going to have a donkey tied and it's going to have a baby donkey tied to it. That's how you're going to know. Very, very exacting. I want you to notice the great specificity of our Lord. Jesus didn't send them off to wander. He didn't give them an arbitrary task. Sometimes we think that God works like this, like he's testing you. Like, hey, go see if you can do this and we'll see if you're going to fail or not. It's not how God works. No, he set it up exactly. He said, I'm going to take care of you. I'm going to specifically set everything up as the good shepherd Jesus cares for his sheep and sends them with specific directions. Interestingly enough, to go requisition what he already supported and supplied, right? They're already getting the stuff that he put there. And it's just right there. Immediately as you walk in, I already took care of everything. And as we study scripture, we'll see this principle again and again. If you've walked with Christ for any amount of time, you see this again and again, that God consistently provides our needs in his timing, but he never leaves us lacking in between. And I think that speaks to his profound love for us. In fact, that's the one thing I really want to highlight in this section. Praise be to God for his purposeful preparation. First, in his perfect timing. Second, in his particular supply. But thirdly, in his profound love. This is one of my favorite parts of Matthew chapter 21. I just see Christ's love for his disciples oozing between the lines. If you read Luke's account of this, Luke says that when they went to get the colt, they found it. Do you remember? just as he had promised. It's just like he said it was gonna be. He took care of them. He said, go do this thing. And they got there, <laughs> just like he said. Who'd have thought? I believe as we look at the section that we see the heart of Christ for his people. You see, doesn't, Jesus doesn't leave them lost or confused or directionless. He doesn't leave them groping in the dark or guessing. And I believe as you read scripture, you see that God always provides for his people. Remember, in a couple days, he's going to go to the Last Supper in the upper room. What's going to happen? He's going to say, hey, go find this room. It's already going to be prepared. Tell this guy we're ready for it. It'll be all ready for us. You go to the Last Supper. He takes the bread and the cup. He supplies and he breaks it, right? It's time to wash the feet. He supplies a bowl and a towel. It's time to give the ultimate Passover lamb. He provides the sacrifice. He pays the debt. He gives himself for the offering. 1 John 3 how great the love the Father has lavished upon us that we should be called children of God. His love for us is amazing. So number one, praise be to God for his purposeful preparation. As you read Matthew chapter 21, I want you to forever remember Jesus did it all. He had it all planned out. Number two, we're gonna step back and praise again. Praise be to God for his precise prophecy. So praise him for his purposeful preparation and praise him for his precise prophecy. God's sovereignty drips from the passage before us this morning. I think that the deeper I dig in it, the more of his sovereignty becomes unveiled, like I'm hitting like an underground well. And this 
particular prophecy is unique because although it's crystal clear, right, this, path, this, uh, verse in, in, uh, this passage from verse 5 in Zechariah 9, although it's clear here, it still didn't make any sense in the context of what's happening. And look at it with me. You have Jesus, the Son of God. Everyone's looking for who? Messiah, right? They're waiting for Messiah to come in. And Jesus rides into the thronging city full of a million people and they're clamoring and he rides in on, say it with me, a donkey. No, 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 not just a donkey, a what? A baby donkey. Jesus rides in on a baby donkey. If you're not used to animals or farms, maybe you don't even see that. You just think, oh, he's riding on a donkey. That's cool. No, no, he rides in on a baby donkey, a baby donkey that's never been ridden before. The creator of the world, they think is coming to be crowned the Messiah, but he rides in just as promised on a baby donkey. You ever seen a donkey? Maybe, maybe just even cartoons. Why are they used in cartoons? Because they're ugly, <laughs> right? Donkeys are made to make fun of people, right? They have other words for donkeys people use, right? The donkey is not a positive thing to call somebody. Now, this is a baby donkey, so maybe it's cute. I'll give you that much. But the people aren't going for cute, are they? They're going for power and for might and for strength. And what do they get? Well, they get the fulfillment of prophecy, and he comes lowly and gentle on a baby donkey. So please don't miss this irony this morning as we look at this text. The irony of the son of God riding in on a baby donkey, the Messiah and the cheering crowd and this little foal. It's honestly a little comical if you think about it. He's riding a baby donkey to what the Jews think is claiming his great throne. What he knows is he's actually setting up his own death. Right, His ultimate victory, the real Victory is coming for sure. But on the entry, it just doesn't look like you expected or hoped. But this is going to be a week full of disappointments for the Jews. This is maybe the first one. It's going to happen over and over and over again until ultimately they say what? Crucify him. Let's get rid of him. So Jesus fulfills a massive prophecy riding in on a donkey, a promise made 500 years earlier. Now, real quick, if you don't mind, would you flip in your Bibles to the other passage where Jesus rides a donkey in? Go ahead and flip to the other one. Go ahead. Whenever you're ready, I'll wait for you. That's it, right? One time. Jesus is a poor man. He has nowhere to lay his head. He has no personal belongings. He's an itinerant preacher, and he walks everywhere he goes. You'll never find another place where Jesus rides anything besides a borrowed boat, I guess. Other than that, Jesus walks everywhere. One commentator said it this way, when he crossed the Sea of Galilee, it was in a borrowed boat. When he rode in the holy city, it was on a borrowed beast. When he was buried, it was in a borrowed tomb. So for him to ride a donkey was not just prophecy fulfilled in humility. It actually necessitated outside involvement because he didn't own a donkey. It wasn't like he rode a donkey all the time and he rode in. They're like, oh, that's kind of cool. Like that one verse says he's gonna ride a donkey. There's Jesus on the donkey. He always rides and here he comes. He had to orchestrate this whole thing because it was abnormal. It wasn't how he always did it. He needed a donkey because that's what Zechariah promised would happen 500 years ago. To understand prophecy, you have to understand God's nature, that God is not only sovereign and omniscient and omnipotent, but that God is timeless. 
So listen to me, everybody dial in real quick. This is gonna go a little deep. God is not only timeless, God is, track with me, literally without time. I know that's a little mind bender. I'm not going into Marvel or anything. We're not time continuums here. But God's not constrained as we are to time because God made time. God holds all of time. Stick with me. I know I'm getting deep here. God in producing prophecy can write the ending from the beginning at the same time or vice versa. God writes prophecy with the end in mind. Something like this. Picture Jesus saying, okay, when I ride in on the triumphal entry, I want to come in humble. That's my goal. I want to come in and sort of send a message. So let, I'm, going to come in, I'm going to come in on a donkey. Nope. I'm going to come in on a baby donkey. Now, no one's going to believe that. So let's tell them about it first. How about here? We'll, I'll raise up a guy named Zechariah. He'll do some prophecies talking about what I'm going to do later on. Because God is outside of time, he can orchestrate it such. There weren't a bunch of prophecies in the Old Testament that were prophesied. And then you have this in, in uh, theologians talk about the intertestamental period between the end of the Old Testament and the beginning of the New Testament. It didn't take God 400 years to figure out how to fulfill prophecy. That wasn't what he was doing, right? He wrote the end from the beginning. So right here, he says, let's have Zechariah announce this 500 years earlier. You see, prophecy is a near impossible thing to fulfill. Let me give you a quick illustration. Maybe you've heard this. It's an old illustration. I think it's worth bringing up. Uh, let's take the old classic. If I gave you a number and said, hey, let's put 10 tickets in this thing and you draw one out, you have a one in 10 chance of picking the right ticket. So a mathematician theologian came together and I said, I'm gonna take some of Jesus' prophecies and I'm gonna do a mathematical equation. Some of you have heard this before. He says, I'm gonna take just eight of them. I'm gonna take eight of Jesus' prophecies and run the numbers. The chance that one man could fulfill eight prophecies from the Old Testament is not one in 10, but one in 10 to the 17th power. I'm not real good at math, but they tell me that's one in 10 with 17 zeros behind it. Now, if you're not real good at math, let me illustrate that further. So this mathematician did a little thing. He said, let me see how I could say this. That would be similar to this. Take the same blindfolded man that's grabbing the ticket out of the hat. Take a silver dollar and put a massive X on that silver dollar and then throw that silver dollar into the state of Texas. Take that blindfolded man and say, oh, wait, one more second. Then fill the entire state of Texas with silver dollars two feet deep. Stir it all up together and then tell the guy, oh, you can go anywhere you want in Texas, but you only get one shot. You got to pick up that silver dollar. That's the same chance that someone has in fulfilling eight prophecies. You know how, you know how many Jesus fulfilled? Hundreds. I just talked about eight. Now, if you're a smart intelligent, thoughtful, skeptical person in here, you're going to say, come on, man. All Jesus has to do is read them and then go fulfill them all, right? Good point. Let me read you a few of the ones that he fulfilled. He was born of a virgin. <laughs> Might be hard to pull that one off. He was born in Bethlehem. How many of you decided where you're going to be born? Right? He was born to the tribe of Judah. They always say you can't pick your family. You can't pick who you're born to. It says that his ministry would begin in Galilee. 
that he would be betrayed by a friend, that he'd be sold for 30 pieces of silver, that he'd be accused by false witnesses, that his hands and feet would be pierced. That prophecy centuries before the Romans invented crucifixion at all. They didn't have crucifixion and he's prophesied that he would die by it. Wow. Prophesied that he would be wounded and bruised, but his bones would not be broken. That he'd be crucified among thieves. These are centuries and centuries, some thousands of years before Jesus came. That his garments would be divided. That he'd be buried in a rich man's tomb and he would rise from the dead. This should make us stand back. When we read a passage like this that says, see your king comes to you gentle riding on a donkey on a colt, the foal of a donkey, we should stand back. Number two, and praise be to God for his precise prophecy because listen, it wasn't a riddle for him. It wasn't a lock. It was more of a key. It's like a combination. Like he, he set it up over here and then came over here and went, oh yeah, I know the code. It was all a setup, right? Jesus did it himself. God made the prophecies he already knew the answers for. It's almost like he wrote them that way. How is scripture able to promise something that comes to pass so many years later? Because the creator, the holder of all scientific order stands outside of time orchestrating the events of mankind. Because God is outside of time, he wrote this book, both parts, because he knew the answers and the questions. It's like Jeopardy, right? You got to phrase that in the form of a question. He knew the answers and the questions. God knew the fulfillment when he wrote the promise. And if you want to find a reason for the deity of Christ, look at prophecy. I hear we're going to do more of that this weekend. If you want to look at the reliability of scripture, look at prophecy. How else could a book have so many locks and keys, so many promises that get fulfilled? The only answer is that this book was written from one outside of time controlling and orchestrating all the events. He plans the answer, then a thousand years earlier, he plants the question. The one true God is the God of the Bible. It's his word. Only God could do that. Only a very, very big God. It's almost like he's cheating. It reminds me of like a child that does a card trick, right? And they fumble through and they go like this and then they put the card right where they want it and they kind of push that one card towards you, right? It's a little bit like God holds all the cards it's almost like he's over and above and outside of everything and he can just like control the universe however he wants to or something. <laughs> something very much like that. And for that we say, praise be to God for his precise prophecy. So this morning in Matthew, praise be to God for his purposeful preparation. Praise be to God for his precise prophecy. And number three, praise be to God for his praiseworthy pardon. Let me continue. This is verse 6 of Matthew 21. The disciples went and did as Jesus had instructed them. They brought the donkey and the colt, placed their cloaks on them, and Jesus sat on them. A very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road, while others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. The crowds that went ahead of him and those that followed shouted, Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, Hosanna in the highest. I'm going to talk for a minute about the significance of what's happening here. It might be lost on us a little bit. Uh, the palm branch has a distinct significance in Jewish history. In about 200 BC, there was a guy named Judas Maccabeus. He was a Hebrew priest, and he led a revolt. They call it the Maccabean Revolt against the Seleucid Empire that was controlled by the Greeks who were controlling Jewish life in Judea. 
famous historical revolt. You can read it when you go home. He goes and sort of like runs against him. He ultimately kind of loses, but at the same time, they sort of get their freedom, so it kind of works out. But in that revolt, the symbol of the revolt becomes a palm branch. So they're waving. It's almost like a flag for them. That's the, that's the sign of the Maccabean revolt. That's the sign of Jewish nationalism. They even print palm branches on Jewish money at the time. So take that note. The palm branches and the shout of Hosanna. It sounds like they're worshiping Jesus, and they are. But there's a nationalistic symbolism happening here. It's like in the civil rights movement. What was the saying of the civil rights movements? We shall overcome, right? Cesar Chavez led the United Farm Workers. He said, si se puede means yes, we can. So be very clear about what is happening here. A Jewish teacher just raised a man from the dead. There's massive Jewish crowds in town at the time and the people see everything and they start shouting and people are like, let's get some palms and they're climbing a tree and they're hacking branches and they're waving them and they're laying them down and they're shouting Hosanna and Hosanna is a, is a word of praise and is all through the Bible but this, it, Hosanna means save us or save us now they're using it a little different. They're saying, Jesus, save us now. Now's the time. They're laying these palm branches. They're waving. They're saying, now's the time. Messiah's coming. Let's do this. Here he comes. We're going to go for it. They're shouting like that, like the classic pro the protester. What do we want? Justice. When do we want it? Now. They're saying the same thing. What do we want? Messiah. When do we want him? Now, and they're quoting Psalm 18. That's Psalm 18 that they're quoting there, verses 25 and 26. But if you look in the John account, they actually add one. John recounts one line that they add. So they say this, you know, um, blessed is the Lord who comes in the name of, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, Hosanna in the highest. And in John, they add, blessed is the king of Israel. Oh, they're thinking nationalistically. These are not people just coming out to worship Jesus. They were coming for a conqueror. They were, come, they were coming to clamor to coronate the king. Right? They were coming for redemption and restoration. They just didn't realize what extent he really meant to bring it. He is Messiah for sure. He is coming for sure. But he's not on a war horse like Judas Maccabeus. He didn't bring an army with him. No, the crowd's intention was very clear. They want a king. And Christ's intention was clear too. They needed a savior. They need a king like Zechariah prophesied, one that was gentle or humble or lowly and mounted on a donkey. Oh yes, for sure. Mark this. Jesus deserves the coronation, 100%. He deserves all the fanfare. He deserves the parade. He deserves the palms. He deserves the praise. He deserves it just not for the reasons they think, but for the actual reason they need. They don't need a political president. That's not what they need. Amen. They need a spiritual savior. And that misunderstanding right there in a few short days will cost Jesus his life. Bruce Milne, one of my favorite commentators, put it this way. Jesus is king. His kingship is of a unique order. To express it, Jesus must disappoint the nationalistic aspirations of his fellow Jews. But king he is. And no confederacy of the powers of evil, whether Sanhedrin, Caiaphas, Annas, Pilate, Rome, Judas, or the prince of this world can wrest that authority from him. 
he moves majestically forward in procession to his throne, a throne constructed by his enemies, a throne of a cross. They needed a king. They were just confused on what kind they needed. And this is what I want to make sure we leave with today, that it's the fickleness of men's hearts and our propensity to worship idols in our lives that leads to this third point today. See, our hearts will always deceive us, right? Our passions and our lusts distort our worship of God. Jeremiah 17, 9 says, the heart is what? Deceitful above all things and desperately sick or desperately wicked. Tim Keller famously calls it, he says, our hearts are idol factories. When one doesn't do it, we just make another one and we make another one and we find something else. And what we see in the crowd is this overwhelming celebration of the coming Messiah. And at first it seems so exciting. It seems so right. And it is exciting and right just for all the wrong reasons. Jesus is not coming to Jerusalem to be their next president. He's not going to take David's physical throne. He's not gonna oust the Romans and create a Hebrew nation state like they hope. There will not be any restoration of Israel on this day. There will be instead what? The accomplishing of Christ's work on the cross, the work of salvation for the people of God, and he will vanquish the enemy that is sin and death. And ultimately, that's not what the crowds came out to celebrate. They don't want a spiritual savior. They want a physical, political deliverer. They don't want a moral victory. They want a military victory. And they don't get what they want. And when they don't, they'll turn and kill him. It'll be less than a week until the cheers of Hosanna will turn into shouts of crucify him. Less than a week till the palm fronds turn into whips. Less than a week until the coats they lay down turn into insults that they'll hurl at him. And the only way to explain what occurs over just these few short days is simply the fickle-heartedness of men. Church, listen, the hearts we have, they're idol factories. We're always looking for something to worship. When he didn't turn out to be who or what they thought he was, when that final week went a little different than they had hoped and dreamed, they didn't change their plans. They didn't repent to God. They didn't true up their heart because now they realize they got it wrong. When Jesus preached something that didn't line up with popular culture, they didn't stand with him regardless the cost. Instead, they threw him out to go find something else to worship. They just got rid of the problem and moved on to someone else. Oh, church, hear this clear. As the hymn writer says, our hearts are prone to wander. Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love. Church, I got to ask, is this true of us this morning? When God doesn't show up or show out the way that we expected him to, or maybe on our timeline, do we simply turn to other idols or even maybe other caricatures of Jesus? Something we can control that does it the way we want. Church, fickle hearts of men is nothing new to God. Adam's heart was fickle. He didn't believe God. Abraham's heart was fickle. It was untrusting. Moses' heart was weak. David, David is called a man after what? God's own heart. And we know how that went. Fickleness. All of these men's hearts were fickle because the heart of man is desperately wicked, scripture says. 
and it needs to be renewed, it needs to be sanctified, it needs to be crucified so that it can be resurrected, but it can never, not ever be trusted. Go do a word study on our hearts in scripture. It's a lot different than our culture says when they say, follow your heart. The Bible says pretty much the polar opposite. But praise be to God that he does not treat us as our sins or our hearts deserve. Amen. That brings me to my third point. Praise be to God for his praiseworthy pardon. And look at the pardon. There's nothing good in us. Oh, that's my later slide. That's pretty fun though. We'll get there. There we go. Look at the pardon. There's nothing good in us to deserve it. There's nothing owed to us from God. There's nothing in us that should draw God to love us. We are disobedient sinners that profane his name. We make idols all the time in our lives because we don't think that he's enough for us. Our thoughts are evil. The Bible says our thoughts are only evil continually all the time. Why should he come at all? Why should Christ submit himself? Why does he go through this charade, this parade, and he knows it's all a setup? He knows it's going to lead to his ultimate death, his horrendous torture, his crucifixion. Why does he do it? And for who does he do it for? For a people whose hearts are fickle and double-minded. They'll be the ones driving the nails in his hands in just a few short days. Why does he do it? Because the character of God, this is important. The character of God is absolute love. God is love and his love compels him to offer a sacrifice for his creation that they might receive salvation and the payment for their fickleness, their double-mindedness, for their, their idol-making heart factories, for their man worship and their self-directed praise. Why does God offer such pardon to wretched, sinful people? Because he loves us. Because he made us. The Bible says that we are his children. We are the sheep of his hand. Why does Christ go to the cross? Because he loves us. You look about as confused as I am. I don't know why he'd do it either. Why would Christ go to the cross for you or for me? Because to Jesus, you know, take notes. This isn't up on the screen. You know, take this one. Because to Jesus, you're worth it. I don't get it either. But to Jesus, you're worth it. Hear that clearly. Jesus went to the cross for you because you're worth it. Jesus went to the cross for you because you're worth it. Jesus went to the cross for you because for some reason, to Jesus, you're worth it. I don't understand it either. In fact, I think it's more than just praiseworthy. Ready for the cool slide? Today, I want to call it, praise be to God for his preposterous, precious, praiseworthy pardon. In just a few short days, Jesus will stretch out his arms on the cross and referring to this day here, and the days in the past, and all the days in the future, he'll open up his hands and he'll say, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Praise be to God for his preposterous, precious, praiseworthy pardon. J.C. Ryle, one of my favorite pastors, writes this. Forever, let us rest our hearts on this most comfortable thought. We have a most willing and loving Savior, it was his delight to do his father's will and to make a way for lost and guilty man to draw near to God in peace. He loved the work he had taken in hand 
and the poor sinful world which he came to save. Never then let us give way to the unworthy thought that our Savior does not love to see sinners coming to him and does not rejoice to save them. He who was a most willing sacrifice on the cross is also a most willing savior at the right hand of God today. He is just as willing to receive sinners who come to him now for peace as he was to die for sinners and willingly suffer on Calvary. It's a lot pressed into this passage this morning. Praise be to God for his purposeful preparation. Praise be to God for his precise prophecy. Praise be to God for his praiseworthy pardon. As John writes in chapter one, he came to his own and his own did not accept him. But as many as received him, to then he gave the right to become children of God. To those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of flesh or the will of man, but born of God. So question for you this morning. Where do you find yourself in the story? In Matthew chapter 21, where do you find yourself? Are you a skeptic sitting on the sidelines doubting who Jesus really is? Maybe you're a zealot shouting for Jesus to do it the way you want it done. Are you waiting, hoping, hoping that that guy up front right now is true that timing is the father's business, but you're not so sure? Or maybe you're here this morning and God's been just sort of tapping at your heart. He's trying to grab hold of you. He's, he's been working on you like he has since the beginning of time for sinners like us. And he's knocking on your door and he's grabbing your heart and he wants to bring you in to join the real worshipers, those that worship Jesus in spirit and in truth. Augustine said one of my favorite quotes. He says, our hearts are restless till they find their rest in thee. If you're here this morning and you resonate with Augustine and you've tried all the other avenues, right, to ease the restlessness of your heart, you've made the idols, the factory just keeps pumping them out and you just keep finding, you gotta make another one and another one and another one. I wanna invite you today to take advantage of Christ's praiseworthy pardon. Sinner, this morning, if you're here, you're invited to the cross. That includes all of us. That's where it starts for all of us, the cross, and that's where it ends for all of us. If you're here today and you're going, hey, I need to come to the cross, meet me after service, I'll be up here somewhere. We'll pray together, we'll go to the cross together. In closing, praise be to God for his purposeful preparation, his precise prophecy, and his praiseworthy pardon. Church, he's worthy of praise, amen? Amen. amen. We're gonna sing in a moment. Let me close us in prayer. God, you are far, far too kind to us, miserable wretches. We don't deserve you. We don't deserve the inheritance you've given us, but we stand in awe with our hearts full of thanksgiving and we praise you, God, for your grace and your kindness, your plan, your purpose, and God, your pardon. This morning, Lord, I pray for my brothers and sisters here this morning that are in a time of waiting. God, I pray you bring them comfort and grow them in patience. I pray for those that are here this morning that are skeptical that want to believe but need help in their unbelief. God, I pray you'd come to them and you'd show them and graciously and mercifully as you always do, you would lead them to yourself. And God, personally, I thank you for your praiseworthy pardon that you would save a sinner like me. Your kindness is overwhelming. We thank you for that. Praise be to God. In Christ's name we pray, amen.